following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series in 1 John. For previous messages or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning, uh, my tiny babies. I'm so glad that you're here today. I'm glad that you, uh, you woke up and you're, you're on time. And many of you are like, he just called us tiny babies. That is very awkward and very weird. And that's the weirdest greeting I've probably got from a pastor on a Sunday morning to begin. Church is called a tiny baby. I'm unsure of how I feel about this. Should I be upset? Should I not be upset? This is a good thing. This is a bad thing. If you looked at our text, though, that's how John begins. He begins with my little children. It's weird to you because... You're not my tiny babies. If I had both of my children standing here, if I had my son Grayson and my daughter Charlie, and I said, my tiny babies, makes perfect sense. Our text this morning, if you look at it, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, my little children, John begins with a very interesting greeting. He begins with my little children. He's, he's positioning himself as father. It makes sense whenever we understand this greeting of my little babies whenever I'm speaking to my kids because I am their father. And John here begins with my little children. Now, there is an age difference here. John most likely is older than the people that he is writing to. But he's positioning himself as father. He's showing his, his love to the individuals just based upon his initial greeting. He's the caring, the loving father. This is what I hope I am with my own two children. We're going through a very interesting parenting age, which I'm sure if you're a parent in the room, um, you've experienced very different, interesting parenting ages. Um, times where you're like, I love my kids, but at the same time, I'm looking for the nearest open window to throw them out right now because, kid, you are just annoying me. I see human depravity spread throughout you on, on a massive scale. It's where we're at with our son Grayson right now. Um, we've had a number of, I'd say, issues with him right now. Um, we're getting to the stage where he's smart enough that he understands that uh, whenever I do stuff wrong, there's punishment. And so if I don't do stuff wrong, or if dad doesn't know I've done stuff wrong, then I'm okay. And you know what? I'm actually smarter than dad. So whenever he asks, Grayson, did you really do that? I can say no, because he doesn't know whether I really did this or not. We're going through this stage with him of, I know, son, that you've done this and, and you've lied to me. But I'm going to give you the chance. I'm going to try and be the loving father. I'm going to try to look at my son, and as I'm going through this process, be as loving and as caring as possible with him. Uh, Wendy and I stole this from another couple that are in our church. They're overworking in kids right now, which is excellent. One Sunday morning, he's uh, going over there to check his, his kids in to our children's. And he does the whole check-in process, and he brings the rest of his kids, and they all just love going to their classrooms. But there's one child that morning that was not too excited to head to the classroom and started to throw just a, a tantrum. And he approaches this child in a way which spoke volumes to me in a, in a loving father way. He, he bends down, and he says, I need your hands and your eyes. And he grabs the child's hands, and, and the child then looks at him in the eyes. And he speaks in a soft, just quiet tone, a very direct tone of, here's what's going to happen. We are going to walk together into your classroom. You're going to say, yes, Daddy. Yes, Daddy. Good. Okay. So once I let go of your hands, I'm going to walk with you. We're not going to complain anymore. We're not going to throw any tantrums. We're not going to have any type of fit. Say, yes, Daddy. Yes, Daddy. Okay, let's go. 
And he stands up, and the kid does it. And I was amazed, and I thought there was something magical to this. So I instantly inserted it, and I said, next time Grayson does this, I know exactly what's going to work. And so I said, Grayson, I need your hands and your eyes. And I grab his hands, and I said, okay, I need your eyes. I, your eyes, like right here. I need, look, at, look at me. Son, your eyes. Not the TV, your eyes. I say, yes, Daddy. Yes, Daddy. Okay, this isn't, this isn't working as well for some reason. There's apparently some other thing I'm missing here. But it got his attention. It's what I want my child to do is I want him to know that daddy loves him, to know that the reason that I'm having this conversation with you is because you've done something wrong or you've done something that wasn't the direct path that I was hoping that you would uh, go on. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to approach you and try to be as loving as possible while still correcting you. It's, it's a fun scenario to do it, but I do this because I love him, because I'm looking for a specific result. My little children. He continues, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's a very important statement here. Big question comes up, though, of what are these things that he is writing to us? Is these things referring to specifically what he has just said? Does these things refer to his entire section of 1 John? Does these things even go broader than that to all of the books that John has written this far? Does it even go even further than that? Does it cover all of Scripture that was current at that time? I would say in this case, it's a both and. It is referring directly back to a specific section, but I believe it's, it's correct to say that it also encompasses the entire book of 1 John. We'll see this where he, he approaches the same kind of a saying here of I am writing these things or I am saying these things so that, and he presents his purpose. And it continues on. As we continue through our series in 1 John, remember as he's referring back to this constantly of I am writing these things to you so that. If we look back at the immediate context, though, of chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, so I believe what John is referring to here in 2, uh, verse 1. Let me read this to you. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I think that John here is looking at this text and realizing there's two possible misinterpretations that can come from this text. And he wants to bring them to light. He wants to clarify what he has just said. These two same possibilities of, of what we can, can read out of this text as well, of, of misinterpreting here. These have to do with grace and with sin. It's what we see in verses 5 through 10. There's the application of grace as well as there is the dealing with of sin. The, the first thing I think that, that John is looking towards, and he doesn't want them to travel down this road, is the idea that sin is inevitable, so why should I even care about it? It's the idea that we are all born as sinful creatures. It is part of our nature. We are sinners by birth, and we continue to sin. So you know what? If there's no way I can beat this, why even care? The second, I think, misinterpretation that John is pointing out here is that sin is covered by Christ. So if my sin is covered by Christ, then 
why do I care about sinning anyways? It's the idea that grace has covered all of my sins, past, present, and future. So if I sin, it no longer matters because Christ has covered it. It's the idea of licentiousness. And you've probably heard it. Both of these uh, have truth within them. Sin has been covered by Christ. That is a true statement. And we are born as sinners, and we will continue to sin. Which is why I believe John here makes a very important case. Why he feels the need to clarify what he has just said. If you look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, Paul here is, is dealing with this idea that Christ has covered all of our sins. Therefore, we can sin as much as we want to. Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If we look back at our text here, 1 John verse chapter 2, we see the purpose here for John's writing. He's writing these things so that you may not sin. He isn't writing them so that we freely sin so that grace may abound. He isn't writing these things so that we can ignore or become complacent to our own sin. He's writing these things so that we may not sin. Church, we have a problem. We've become very calloused. Uh, we've become very callous to many things, but one of the big things that we've become callous to is sin. There's a level of ease, I think, that happens within the church regarding sin. When was the last time you saw somebody ever weeping over their own sin? When was the last time your own sin, when you, you look at your own life and you realize the things that you have done against God just caused you to be broken? It isn't something that we often talk about. We don't often proclaim a, a doom and gloom sin message. But sin is doom and gloom. We, we are all on board and ever hear things such as we are all sinners. And we all affirm that statement in agreement. But whenever it comes to a personal look at me and understanding my own sin, we often back up from that because that can be very tough. That's hard. Sin is a serious problem. And sin is counter to God, which is why it is a serious problem. We can see the seriousness of sin if we look back into the Old Testament. If we go back to the Old Testament, we can see the sacrificial system. We can see the way that God required uh, his people to cover or atone for their sins. Leviticus chapter 4. It's going to be on the screens. I'm going to read it to you. But I just want you to think through, place yourself in this scenario. Don't look at it as them, but place yourself right here. You are observing what is happening. Use all of your senses. Imagine the sounds that you would hear. Imagine the sights that you would see. Imagine the smells that you would smell this time. Leviticus 4, I'll read verses 4 through 12. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord. That is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, he shall remove from it. 
the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrail, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. Can you visualize this? Can you imagine this? This is not a a PG-rated scene. There is blood all over the place. Can you smell this? One of the worst smells in the world is the smell of burning hair. If you've ever been around the smell of burning hair, it is awful. And yet, we have the smell here of the entire bull, hair, carcass, head, everything burning in an ash heap. We have the smell of the fat and the kidneys and the piece of the liver sitting on a, a, an altar being burned as well. Can you smell that? Can you hear that? It's disgusting. There's blood being sprinkled. There's a pool of blood being poured out. There's the hair that is sizzling on the ash heap. It's not a pretty act. In fact, I would say it's probably disgusting. The dung of the animal was thrown in there as well. Not a good thing. This doesn't even compare to what our sin looks like, though. This is simply a minor representation of our sin against God. And God chooses to make this. We often think of the sacrificial system as a very clean and organized system, which it was organized. But there was some disgusting things that happened, especially in a modern day looking back on it, that we'd be very uncomfortable with. If you go to HEB and you go to the butcher, you're not seeing what actually has occurred to get to that point. If you've ever grown up, grown up on a farm, I remember uh, I had the privilege of growing up in South Central Missouri. And one of the things that stuck with me in my mind was we went and uh, we went with some friends who were butchering a cow. And uh, it was an interesting story. It took a while for that cow to, to actually die, which that was interesting as a little boy to, to watch them actually trying to kill this animal, and this beast was not willing to give up his life. But after that, to see the actual process of removing the innards and to remove the beef from that cow gave me a great respect for a butcher because you have to be knowledgeable, and it's not a clean process. You don't wear your Sunday best to go do that. At the end of it, you are covered head to toe. It doesn't matter what you wore there. Everybody walks out wearing the exact same clothing of blood and hair and disgust all upon them. God deals with sin in a mighty way. If you grew up in the church, then you probably heard the stories of the Old Testament, of how God chooses to deal with sin. Think of a popular one, Noah and the flood. Noah and the flood. Uh, it's a story that we teach over in children's often. However we usually focus upon the good aspects of Noah and the flood. We usually focus on the animals. And think about all of the animals that are on that boat, and they are just glorious, and they look beautiful. We don't often think about what happens whenever animals use the restroom on this boat. And we often don't think about what's outside the boat. Usually our focus is what is on inside. Noah and his family and the animals have been saved. Praise God. 
Think about the outside of this boat, though. The flood has occurred. Why has the flood occurred? Because God has chosen to erase people in this way. Outside of that boat, there's banging. There is pleading. There is a desire to get inside of that boat, to seek refuge. And it doesn't come. Sin has filled the world, and God has chosen to remove the people. Death is occurring. Think of another case, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. God chooses here through, through the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to save Lot uh, and to save his family. And then he destroys the city. He calls down fire to destroy the city. There is death occurring. And even Lot within his own family. He was given a, a, a requirement that Lot, whenever you leave, run and do not look back. Give this to your family. Let them know whenever you leave, run and do not look back. If we look back, we see what happens. Lot's wife. Lot's wife looks back instantly, a pillar of salt, and she's gone. God deals with sin in a mighty way. Sin is a big deal against God, and he deals with it in an according stance. We often look at sin as simply like a paper cut upon my finger. Paper cuts hurt, don't get me wrong. That itty-bitty slice on my finger causes some distraction at times. Sin is a lot more than a simple paper cut on my finger, though. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sin is not a paper cut. Sin is death. We are dead. It isn't a small, meaningless act. When discussing theological concepts such as sin, it's very important that we all kind of get our foundational of what is sin. If sin is such a big deal against God, then we probably need to know what is it. How can I define it? How can I place a definition on sin? The literal definition for sin is simply missing the mark. That's, what, that's the, the translated definition of sin, is simply missing the mark, which is very helpful to think through that. John chooses to use a similar definition. If you turn just one page, probably, first, uh, yeah, first John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And here's his definition. Sin is lawlessness. So John chooses to define sin as coming against God. It is coming against the word of God, the laws of God. Anything that comes against God's word is defined as sin. As well as, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, it is also part of our nature. This is one area where uh, I think catechisms can be helpful. Uh, if you've never heard of a catechism, depending on what your church background is, you might be familiar with catechisms. You might not be familiar with catechisms. Uh, a catechism is simply a document that is a summary of doctrines. That's what a catechism is kind of defined as. It's simply a summary of doctrines. Uh, we haven't done catechisms in a really long time in the history of the church, but we see them a lot in the early churches. They're trying to define who are we as a church and what do we believe. One of the most popular, popular ones is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, it's written in a way of question and answer. So it presents a simple question, and it is then presenting a, a quick answer. Uh, it's a great piece to kind of begin to think through because it's questions like, what is sin? That's a tough question to answer. 
Westminster Shorter Catechism answers that question, though. It presents the question simply of, what is sin? And its definition for sin, its answer to the question, is sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It defines it much like John does. John's definition, sin is lawlessness, is a little bit easier to memorize, possibly, than the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, But it comes across with the same idea, that it is against God or against the law of God. So I've just looked at some definitions saying that we are all sinners and it is our very nature. Then John tells us he's writing these things so that you may not sin. How does this work, John? You've just told us we are all sinners and we are going to sin, but I'm writing these things so that you do not sin. John isn't suggesting, suggesting here that we're not capable of, that we are capable of not sinning. We see that in the previous chapter. What he's saying here is strive to be more like Christ. Strive to become more Christ-like. Strive to remove sin. Strive to sin less. Take every thought captive. Our God is holy, and in him is holiness. If our goal is to become more like Christ, our goal then is to become more holy, Now that we have a better understanding of sin and the series of sin, let's continue here in our text. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, good. I'm glad he added in that, but if anyone does sin, because I'm standing here saying, yes, that is me. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. Christ is our advocate with the Father. Just as in the Old Testament, a perfect and spotless uh, animal, its blood must be shed as a covering for sin, our sin separates us from the Father, and redemption is needed. We have the advocate to the Father by the Son. An advocate, it it might be an unfamiliar word to you, it's simply someone who makes a public defense. Uh, It is often thought of in the, the courtroom setting as the defense attorney. Christ is our defense attorney. This is the person pleading your case. It's as if we are in the courtroom and we are standing behind Christ. He's saying, this one is mine. Don't even look at them, look at me. He's publicly professing a belonging. We're clothed in his righteousness. We see he's described as Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is counter to our sin. This is completely different than what he's been talking about. He's just talked about sin in the past chapter. He begins in chapter 2 here of talking about sin. And now he's presenting Jesus Christ. He's giving him the definition of the righteous. The righteous one is claiming us. He's continually making our defense for us. The text goes even further. Not only is Jesus one that we are able to stand behind, not only is he the one that he, that he claims us as his own, but we're also able to place his righteousness upon ourselves. Verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We have two great theological words that you find within these first two verses. Uh, first one we just went over, advocate. And the next one is a really fun word, propitiation. Everybody say it with me. Ready? One, two, three. Propitiation. Good. One more time. Ready? One, two, three. Propitiation. Good. Well done. So what in the world does that word actually mean? What does it mean that Jesus is our 
propitiation. The word propitiation simply means to take the wrath of God. Sin must be punished. We've discussed this. God is just. Jesus has taken our punishment upon himself. We have all been declared guilty within the court. We were born into our punishment of death. Don't be confused. The wrath was not simply erased and forgotten. It's as if the punishment has, not, has been declared and then the punishment has been removed. The punishment has been declared and fulfilled. It's been fulfilled, not removed. Christ has taken our death upon himself in our stead. He has bore my penalty upon his shoulders and then he has declared me as his own. He's taken the punishment of my sin and placed his righteousness instead upon me. And then publicly professes, this one is mine. He's marched to the hill of Calvary carrying the weight of the cross. The weight of the cross to include the weight of my own sin. That cross bared weight, but nothing compared to the weight of my sin upon my, my Savior's back. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Sin is great, but the sacrifice of Christ was greater. He has conquered death and reigns in victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Praise be to God. We can join with the heavens and declare, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God is gracious. He has made a way through his son. The end of verse 2 here presents a, a confusing section at face value, though. He's a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's a, a, the ending here, the, the sins of the whole world, um, has been taken out of context for um, an, an idea called universalism. Uh, universalism made a, a big push, I would guess probably three or four years ago. Uh, a, a popular pastor uh, wrote a book simply called Love Wins. And the premise of this book uh, was based around this idea here that uh, Christ is a propitiation for the sins of the whole world and the idea that in theology we know that God is love. Therefore, he kind of made the assumption that because God is love, he would not allow anyone to enter into hell. So the idea of universalism is that universe, everybody, is covered and is therefore, because God loves them, enters into heaven. They use this verse here to point towards Christ removing the wrath of all, uh, removing the wrath of God upon all. This is why it's very important to, whenever we see a confusing scripture, to look at other scriptures to help us to clarify. If you were in our theology night, we do theology nights about once a quarter or so. We had one back in January. Uh, and in January, we looked at Bible study methods of, of, of observing the text, interpreting the text, and then lastly, applying the text. One of the most important things to do whenever we're going through text is to think of how is this text possibly used in other areas. Because oftentimes what we'll find is areas where Scripture might not be the clearest. We can find other verses where it is very clear. Uh, sin must be paid for. 
that payment of sin is death. Christ has paid the penalty for sin. We have an advocate. For those that reject Christ, God's wrath will still be upon them. There is no advocate. There is not Christ saying, these are mine. I am declaring those behind me as my own. Regardless of this, though, we have a mission still. Because of the whole world concept, this is not simply a theological statement. This also has a missiological purpose within it. We, as the church, are left with a mission. We are to proclaim Christ's death to the fallen world. We are called to proclaim it to ourselves, and we're called to proclaim it to those around us as well. Because of what Christ has done to us, because of what Christ has done for us, we have a purpose. And our purpose is to display, to share, to proclaim this message, the message of Christ. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what do we do now? What's, what, what's the, the purpose of this? How do we respond to this? First, I think it's, it's important to understand that we are sinners by nature. That within each of us, we were born into sin. As Ephesians chapter 2 says, we are born as dead individuals. Strive however, to sin no more. Strive to take every thought captive. Strive to sin no more. Whenever you do sin, there is an advocate. There is propitiation. We see this in chapter one. John has a great thing. He repeats himself a lot. Justin mentioned this on the very first Sunday. I loved whenever Justin mentioned it too. He says, uh, authors oftentimes have a way of repeating themselves. And then what did he do? He said, People repeat themselves. He repeated himself repeating himself, which was excellent, well done. But it's what John loves to do. As we're going through the text, John is going to point back to things and help to clarify things as well. It's important that we understand the seriousness of our sins. The Old Testament way that sin was dealt with is the New Testament way that sin is dealt with as well. God has not changed his way of dealing with sin. Blood is the covering of sin. What has changed is once and for all, that it is through the blood of Christ upon the cross as he has marched the hill to Calvary, as he has taken my sins upon his shoulders, he has made my payment. Understand the seriousness also of confession and repentance. Understand the seriousness of what Christ has done on our behalf. When you sin, remember the advocate who has taken the wrath you deserve upon himself. We're all struck by the lack of seriousness of our sin. We're all struck by the lack of seriousness of Christ's death. And for many of us, when we become callous to our own sin, for many of us, we've even become callous to Christ's death and what has accomplished through that. Sin has lost its disgust, and Christ's death, honestly, has, for some of us, lost its wonder. Whenever our sin becomes great, Christ's death becomes even greater. One of the ways that we can be reminded of our own sin and reminded of Christ's death are the tables that are in front of me. If you look at these tables, they represent something. They're not simply bread and juice upon a table. There's a lot more within here. They represent the body and the blood that was shed on my behalf. Not because I have earned it. Not because I deserve it. In fact, I deserve something quite opposite. 
but it's because of his love, because of his choice to make me, to, for him to be my advocate. These were broken while I didn't deserve it, and I can never earn it. Brandon, if you'd come on forward. One last text, Romans 5, chapter 8. But God showed his love for us in that while we, will still, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This morning, we're going to enter into a time of communion. Before we do, Brandon's going to, to play behind me, and I'm going to uh, pray. And I want you to remain in your seats for a couple seconds. I want you to take this time as a time of confession, as a time of repentance, as a time of examining your own life a time to look upon our own sin, and do you find disgust within it? Have you become callous to your own sin? After you've done that, I'm going to ask you to then look at Christ. Remember what Christ has done on your behalf. At that point, feel free then to come up and and partake of the bread and partake of the juice. We have four stations, two up front and two in back. After you've done that and you have partaken, head back to your seat and stand with us as we continue in worship. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I just thank you. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. And Father, I confess that at many times my sin does not disgust me. Father, I I ask you, Lord, to reveal my sin to me, Lord that I would be broken because of the sin within me. Lord, and I thank you for making a way. I thank you, Lord, for Christ's death upon the cross and what it has accomplished. Thank you, Lord, that your son is my advocate. Lord, that I stand in the courtroom as as Satan is is sending lies, Lord, and, and you sit as judge that Christ is before me, declaring me as his own. I thank you, Lord, that he has taken the wrath that I deserve, that upon the cross, Lord, my sin, my shame, my disgust was upon his shoulders. Lord, I pray that I would never forget that. I pray, Lord, that as I look upon my life and realize my sin is great, Lord, that I am always reminded that your grace and your son's sacrifice is greater. Lord, thank you for making a way. I pray for the people of Stone Oak Church, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who understand our sin is great, but who understand we have a greater Savior, Lord. And I pray this to be the message that we continually proclaim not just on Sunday mornings, Lord, but this would be a message that we as Stone Oak Bible Church are known for. We are the church that proclaims the glorious death of Christ, Lord. And Father, in two weeks as we, we celebrate not the death, Lord, but the empty tomb, Father, I ask that you would prepare our hearts for that moment right now, that we always remember, Lord, that the cross has accomplished this, Lord, and, and the empty tomb, Father. Thank you. It is in your son's holy and precious name, Lord, that we pray. Amen.